Lost in Science for another week. Uh, This is half an hour of your favourite science radio communicators, radio scientists, Mm, probably not radio scientists, whatever you want to call us, chatting to you about uh, what, you know, might be some of your favourite science in the near future. Uh, My name is Claire and with me this week I have Stu and Chris. Hello, you two. Hi, Claire. Hi, Claire. (laughs) Hello, hello. Now, um, you know, you two have stories for us. What have you brought to the people this week, Stu? Well, um, I got some sweet stuff for you this week. <gasps> Love a bit of sweet stuff. Is it chocolate so, related? Uh, well, I guess you could put it into chocolate. I mean, it's mostly something that you'd probably find in soft drinks, but okay, I'm actually going to be talking about aspartame, which has been popping up again in the news recently because, well, I don't know, lazy journalists didn't have anything better to write about. But look, there's <laughs> been a bit of there's been a bit of coverage of aspartame and possible health risks that might be associated with it. But I'm just going to actually drill down into it and, and have a look at what's actually been said and what it really means. Hang on, um, hang on. Can for for those of us who are aspartame naive, such as me, what is it? It's a sweetener. Oh, it's a sweetener. Okay, yeah. it- add it in place of sugar to you know. Drinks and other things, lollies and Put vitamins it in your and diet, all sorts of things. Diet, diet cola and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, great. And Chris, what do you have for us this week? Well, Claire, um, you might recall we were talking recently, the three of us. We had a little bit of a chat about AI, uh, <laughs> artificial intelligence. And I thought I'd bring that discussion on the line. Um, and yeah, have a bit of a chat about some of the, some of the discussion that's going on at the moment, some of the fears that are being put out there Mm. and, um, whether people are focusing on the right things. You know, there's a lot of talk about super intelligent computers being a threat to humanity, but I don't know. There's a lot of voices starting to wonder whether perhaps the hype is pointing in the wrong direction and we should be focused on more realistic problems. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of our guests, Dr. Linda McIver, did have um, some things to say about that uh, a couple of months ago. Um, so, I mean, it's always good to revisit these these issues, especially when it's something as fast-moving and, you know, potentially life-changing, game-changing, work-changing as artificial intelligence. So that is um, that's going to be great. Thanks, Chris. Well, on with the show. You might have uh, heard aspartame being mentioned in the news or read stories about it. It's popped up um, again. It's it's actually one of the uh, most commonly added food additives, um, and it's been around. It's been tested on all sorts of things. But uh, there's headlines at the moment that linking it with cancer, um, linking it with the World Health Organization, mentioning it in that context. Now, all this is true. Like, there's nothing. There's nothing untrue about. The reports, but the reporting is pretty typically, I think, trying to sell newspapers or more likely get clicks on news websites. So let's just roll back on this for a second and ask the obvious question 
what is aspartame? So aspartame was synthesized in 1965 by a chemist who was actually looking for an anti-ulcer drug. And he was doing some work and he was using this as an intermediate step to develop an anti-ulcer drug for the company he was working for. And I've got to say, he figured out it was sweet. And this really does actually disturb me that this is how he discovered aspartame as a potential sweetener. He licked his finger to turn a page and he had some aspartame on his finger from the lab and it got him wondering if he could use it as a sweetener. I just, it blows my mind that someone was so... That is pretty lackadaisical. It really is, you know, there's there's all sorts of protocols that you're getting wrong there if you happen to lick your finger. Oh, that tastes sweet. Lucky it wasn't something worse. Uh, you know, anyway. I mean, he was trying to make a medicine to cure ulcers. So, you know, I mean, he was going to probably ingest it at some point anyway. I mean, lab, it's yeah. bad. Lab hygiene, you know. Yeah, bad lab hygiene. Anyway, you look at it. Uh, anyway, so he did discover it was sweet. And aspartame is about 200 times sweeter than sugar. So you can add very, very low quantities of it to things to make them substantially sweeter. So even though if you ate it, you know, gram for gram, it has about the same calories as sugar, but because you have to add so much less of it, it's lower calories than sugar because you don't put as much in to get the same level of sweetness. So the chemical itself is uh, a combination of two amino acids. There's aspartic acid, which is an amino acid that can be synthesized in the human body. And there's phenylalanine, which is an amino acid that can't be synthesized. So that's an essential amino acid. You have to get that in your in your diet, basically. Um, is that the one that there's always the, the warnings on the, the Diet Coke saying phenylketonurics, this contains phenylalanine? Yes. So yeah. phenylalanine, some people can't, consume it they have a reaction to it which is you know it must be very difficult to get by if you are allergic to an amino acid which is required by your body so it's it's a tricky situation but yeah obviously those people shouldn't be eating or drinking anything that's got phenylalanine in it but so amino acids are the building blocks of protein so any proteins we require in our bodies have to be put together from amino acids which are either synthesized by our bodies, or we consume them as food. So aspartame is used in lots of foods as a sweetener, as I said, especially in things like soft drinks, which is probably the most common way that most people would have it. But it's also in like vitamin gummies and all sorts of things where you want low sugar levels, but you want the sweetness for some reason. It can be used in other foods as well, but it degrades in high temperatures and it also degrades in high pH. So anything in an alkaline pH range, it it breaks down the aspartame. So it's not really, you know, you can't really use it for cooking cakes or anything like that. You've got to find other alternatives, which is why it's not used in that way. So it was approved for use in foods by the US Food and Drug Administration in 1974, was briefly unapproved in 1980, and was reapproved in 1981. There was some, there was some irregularities with the reporting of the trials of its safety 
which turned out to be irregularities that weren't actually affecting the results of the trials. They were, they were sort of, you know, um, administrative irregularities almost. So they weren't actually, they didn't actually change the results at all. So that's why they reapproved. They went, oh, well, we re-ran all these trials and got the same results. So it was not a problem. But recently you might've seen the International Agency for Research on Cancer, also known as the IARC, classified aspartame as being possibly carcinogenic to humans based on what turned out to be very limited evidence that it could possibly do that. Now, that IARC classifies things according to whether they present a hazard. In other words, whether it is possible under any circumstances to cause cancer in humans. That's what they're looking at. The IARC does not classify things according to risk, which is how likely something is to actually cause cancer. Um, But there are other organizations that do that risk analysis, including the World Health Organization and FAO, that's the Agriculture Organization of the UN, the Joint Expert Committee on Food Additives. They have an organization to do that. So the the IARC is not part of the WHO? It's... Not a... It's not. It's an independent body. Um, they are separate from the World Health Organization, but the World Health Organization does use some of their findings in their other you know, agencies. Now, you might remember the IARC from another cancer news story a few years ago when they declared glyphosate, the active ingredient in the herbicide Roundup, to be probably carcinogenic, which is like a higher ranking you know the the aspartame's only possibly roundups probably but even now the iarc are the only agency in the world to classify that chemical as a hazard for cancer in humans nobody else in the whole world has said that's a hazard and and strangely for a study that's supposedly looking into chemicals that might cause cancer in humans they, in their assessment of glyphosate, they excluded human data. So there was actually a lot of data on human health and glyphosate that they just ignored because it wasn't part of their study. But anyway, back to aspartame, which the IARC has classified as possibly carcinogenic in human, which puts it in the same category as uh, scary cancer-causing or possibly cancer-causing things like eating pickled vegetables and skin contact with aloe vera yeah I, I think we looked into this before i think um carpentry was also on the list of possibly carcinogenic yeah um yeah. and that that um because they have a number of classifications and i remember once we was looking at it that the the category of probably not carcinogenic i think it was only one item as decided that they declared <laughs> not carcinogenic I mean, it's it's also interesting the way they the way they report on their ranking there's basically four categories that they've got the fourth category is, is not carcinogenic. This possibly carcinogenic is second from the bottom category, but they list it as being the third highest or the mm. third highest hazard level. And I go, well, it's the second bottom hazard uh, level as well. There's um two A and two B, I think. Yeah, there is, but yeah. it's yeah, it's one 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 two A, two B, and three. Which I don't know why they didn't just go one and two, four. There there is a four. There, there is a fourth one. Yeah, the four um, is the not carcinogenic, and that's the um, yeah, like one item on it, which is not water, strangely enough. Oh, what is it? <laughs> it's K 
caprolactam. It's a chemical that's used to make nylon. So it must have been I enough mean, studies on this particular chemical right, that decided yeah, it's not carcinogenic, yeah, yeah. whereas water the jury's still out on. I mean, that, that's, that's the other thing is there's <laughs> got to be a reason. There's got to be a reason to investigate it. So this is the first time they've ever, the IRC has ever looked at aspartame. So that's why it's kind of come up. Now, the problem with hazard assessments is they don't take into account exposure. And as Theophrastus von Hohenheim, better known as Paracelsus, told us in the 16th century, all things are poison and nothing is without poison. Um, Or to put it in simple terms, what he was getting at is the poison is in the dose. How much of something you get exposed to is what causes a toxic effect of something. Now... The Joint Expert Committee on Food Additives, or JECFAR, understands this, and they have figured out safe consumption levels for all sorts of additives, including aspartame, which they have set three times at 40 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. They've also reiterated that recommendation after the IARC's latest classification announcement, and they stated that Safety is not a major concern at the doses which are commonly used when they're talking about aspartame. So they did not change anything with their recommended you know, intake of aspartame. They've stuck by their guns. Now, to put that in to, into perspective, to exceed the dosage of 40 milligrams per kilogram per day, a person weighing 70 kilograms would have to drink about a dozen cans of diet soft drink in a day, every day, to be in you know to be above this recommended dosage level. So that's a lot of of uh, aspartame that you'd have to consume. Which isn't to say that some people might not do that, because you know we live in a strange world and there's all kinds of different kind of lifestyle choices and dietary pressures and those sort of things on people. Absolutely. And, you know, I think if there are people who are drinking a dozen cans of diet soft drink a day, they better cut down a bit because they're exceeding the limit. The other thing to or another thing to consider about this is that because the components of aspartame are both amino acids, the body can break them down. So there's not really any risk that you're going to build up levels of aspartame higher than, you know, you know, it, does, it doesn't stick around. It just gets broken down because they are common amino acids that we are used to doing. Our body can dispose of them. It's not really a problem for us to metabolize them. Now, Jekfart did suggest that more studies are needed, which is always a good idea, but they have considered the evidence on cancer risk in animal and human studies and concluded that the evidence of an association between aspartame consumption and cancer in humans is not convincing. So from their point of view, they're basically saying all the evidence we've got is not pointing towards a, a cancer hazard from aspartame at the levels that people consume it, you know, the average levels. That's not to say that there's not, and they're saying we do need to do more studies. But I think, you know, in another way, this might be another case of journalists looking for an easy clickbait title for their story or possibly even given the benefit of the doubt a simple misunderstanding of the difference between hazard and risk which you know we should all we should all be across that but based on the evidence so far the flurry of aspartame panic stories might just be a storm in a coke can 
I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short-range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. The science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. What's so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. All right, so as a parent of young children, I was recently, I guess, thinking about what the future may hold, you know, Kesara, Sarara, and all that kind of thing. And no, I mean, and like there are, it is a, you know, we obviously the world has continues always to be you know, areas of concern. Like we know we have a climate crisis that's continuing to yep. unfold. Um, we have, you know, nuclear armed countries at, um, you know, opposing each other. But I started to think about what are the, like, what are the unknowns, the, the new things coming up? And like the obvious one really is AI, artificial intelligence. I mean, we're already seeing with the rise of some of these, um, large language models and those sort of things, changes to the way people work and study and this sort of stuff. And it is really interesting to think about what will life be like, say, for in the, the world of work in, say, mm. 20 or 30 years' time. These things do have the potential to change stuff, yes. Obviously, a lot of people are concerned about this, um, and some of these concerns have been voiced have been quite extreme, shall we say. Um, there have been a few technology experts this year putting out warnings that perhaps AI could pose an existential risk to humanity. They've suggested things like a six-month pause in research for governments to put regulations in approach. You know, it's that serious, they're saying. But I don't know. I think um, we're hearing more and more people at the moment saying that perhaps we should not focus on these hypothetical existential risks when there are, you know, foreseeable genuine risks and current risks. Mm which, mm. as you're saying, Claire, we had discussed some of these problems before on the show. Yeah, that, that's right, with um, Dr Linda McIver. So what kind of things did, did she raise, if you could remind our... Linda talked about AI used in HR systems to cull sort of like large numbers of job applications to smaller numbers of job applications, but based on information of who works at an organisation um, to sort of like work out potential cultural fits within that organisation. So um, her issue and her that, that she raised was that there is a lot of implicit bias and a lot of bias sort of written within these artificial intelligence systems and that there is nothing being done about it to address that. That's right. Um, it, I guess that's an example of how these technologies can be used, I guess, to make already bad systems even worse in some ways. Yeah, um, and, and actually hiding and being very... Hiding the fact that they, um, that they are worse because a lot of the companies that use this AI, they have a vested interest to keep their business so they don't necessarily let their technology let everyone have access to the technology and the algorithms so we mm. don't actually know what these algorithms are doing. Yeah. And, of course, there are other things that we see um, all the time. You know, there is obviously the, the deep fakes, which are getting better and better and, and harder to pick. There is the, uh, the environmental impact of just mm. of these large computing systems, the amount of electricity required to, to run these yeah this intensive computing which has itself its own carbon footprint Stu, i believe you've had some 
some thoughts about that as well? It, just in general, the you know the idea of the cloud, everything's in the cloud. That just means that there's massive banks of servers working, you know, twenty four seven, storing people's data. It's there. There is no cloud. It's just someone else's computer. But the AI learning models already use a huge amount of computing power and need a huge amount of data storage. And then every time someone ask them a question you know i was reading the other day that um that that every time someone asks chat gpt a question it's costing the company money because Mm. they're having to run all these servers and they're running the programs and all of you know running the apps and it's that that all adds up to energy and that energy is increasing all the time i think you know the, the if you look at a graph of computing energy around the world it's it's kind of a really steep curve and it's not not likely to slow down anytime soon. So, and um, as we discussed, we're also think, seeing things like um, you know changes to the nature of work. Perhaps um, you know the new technologies often generate new new jobs, but they take away jobs as well. And, and with his current developments, we're seeing perhaps threats to positions we might not have imagined. Like the current uh, writers' mm. strike in the screenwriter strike in America is being one of the concerns is the use of AI. To uh, to write scripts, which um, who would have thought that the artist would be the first to be to be replaced? Yeah. As you're saying, then, as, as you put out, Stuart, these are these are real world things that people might always might always think about. And um, instead, we're getting warned, like I said, about these existential risks to humanity. So I think it's worth just looking at where some of those concerns are coming from and who is voicing them, because um, there are a couple of, I guess, concerning. I guess, possibilities going on there. So one of the big statements put out this year, and I'm going to take this one a little bit at face value, was put out by such leading technologists as our good old friend Elon Musk uh, and Steve Wozniak, founder of Apple. Um, And they're associated with something called the Future of Life Institute, which, uh, among other things, is uh, promoters of a philosophy called long-termism. Have you heard of long-termism? No, long-termism. It might sound as a good idea. I mean, if you think about long-term effects of things, surely it's important, one would say. But um, when we actually figure out what they're talking about, it's uh, you can see where the problem is. Um, so what does long-term mean to you then, Claire? Long-term, uh, I mean, we're talking like, you know, a couple of years, your five-year plan, your long-term plan. Um, we might have to do a bit better than that. Stu, do you have an idea what long-term might mean in this scenario? I think they're probably talking about the literal future of the human species kind of thing. Is that is that so? How long? How long are you thinking there? Roughly, I don't know. Millennia. What if I said to you, trillions of years? (laughs) What? So one of the ideas essentially is that they're trying to optimize the long term benefit, and the the goal generally is seen as being humanity becoming a spacefaring species that colonizes the universe. So we're talking about literally trillions of years towards whatever the end of the universe might be. So outlasting the Earth, everything like that, and. In this context, anything that they see as an existential threat, like artificial intelligence, is the most important thing to worry about, as opposed to petty human concerns like poverty, war, these sort of things. So it's kind of a utilitarian outlook, I suppose, in that sense, um, but fairly extreme. 
um, which is why big concern about something that they see as perhaps a existential threat. So something like COVID, for instance, obviously killed a lot of people, but was never going to wipe out humanity. Whereas they're saying mm. super intelligent AI could potentially wipe out humanity. So that's where our efforts should be focused. Sure. It also comes across as a fairly entitled viewpoint to, to be yeah, able to have, absolutely. doesn't it? Absolutely. So that is kind of one of the, the drivers, perhaps, of this concern. Um, the other one came out, I guess, in a response to this first open letter. There was another one put out from various technologists, including people from Google and the CEO of OpenAI, Sam Altman. OpenAI is the company behind ChatGPT. And they also expressed concern and they have called for, again, government action. And... They're the ones that really got me thinking. It's like, these are the people building this technology. Why are they so keen for us to suddenly be concerned about and scared of the power of the technology? If they perhaps got something to to gain from this, one might wonder. You know, there is, I guess, concern from some of these groups of how they're going to make money out of this and how perhaps they can perhaps by putting a pause, and I don't want to get too conspiratorial, but by putting a pause on actions, you could perhaps control competitors. Sam Altman did actually testify before US Congress saying, calling for perhaps the government should license development of AI. Now, that's a good way for, I guess, companies who are involved in it to prevent other people from working on it. So, yeah, that's this kind of thing, I guess, when people who are, like I said, who are making a product start calling for regulations on the thing they're making. Perhaps they have their own interests at heart. It's worth pointing out here that when we're talking about OpenAI, which, again, produces ChatGPT, which a lot of people would have used, it's a very, it is a very useful product. Um, the name OpenAI came from the fact that they were meant to be a non-profit, open research, everything like that. Uh, it's been a few years since they locked everything down. Uh, Microsoft has got an exclusive license to use their products. Um, their work is not open anymore, even though the name still says it's open so i guess don't be fooled by some of the the names of these things but yeah i just thought these things are worth bearing in mind um perhaps some of these big threats are being warned about maybe not things you should worry about there's um more pressing concerns like we have discussed um it's worth noting that the australian government is actually looking at some of these more immediate concerns they put out a discussion paper what do they call it? The Safe and Responsible AI in Australia. You can have a look at that. I think comments are open till the 26th of July, 2023. So, um, yeah, there is actual real work going on to try and improve the AI we have today without worrying about, I guess, Skynets or matrixes, matrices in the possible future. That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for joining us. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation at the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsight.gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR or try us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 or just tune in again next week wherever you listen to us when Stu, Claire and Chris get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. 
We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.